Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Proverbs. Nice to see that we have a big group today. I guess you all heard we were going to talk about sex. <laughs> oh. Proverbs chapter 5 deals with uh, an encounter with, if you, if you have the NIV, it has a title that says, Warnings Against Adultery. We're going to meet the adulterous woman. It is interesting to me because what we're going to see in Proverbs chapter 5 is a pattern. It's kind of a pattern of life, and we're going to use Proverbs chapter 5 to illuminate this pattern. The pattern looks something like this. God creates us with particular needs. For example, we have a need for food. We have a need for water. We have a need for companionship. What we're going to see here is we have a need for relationship, and with that comes the need for a sexual relationship. That's a need that God has created in us. God also provides a solution for that particular need. He created a need in us for food. It's called hunger. And he created the solution for it, which is food. Simple enough. God's provision satisfies the need in question. It's not like it halfway satisfies it or partially satisfies it he created the need he created the solution and they were made for each other but to obtain the solution that god has provided requires that we live a life of discipline and wisdom we can't just accept substitutes and expect to have the blessing of God. If we look for solutions, but we look for solutions outside the provision that God has provided, and seeking our own solutions leads to destruction. So in case you want to fall asleep, let me tell you where we're going to go. God created us with a need for sex. God created a solution it's called a spouse. But in order to obtain a spouse, we need to live a life of discipline and wisdom. And in doing so, that need will be satisfied. But we, as fallen sinful human beings, go looking, do I dare say it, looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> we go looking for another solution. And that other solution produces death and destruction. And that's what we're going to see in today's lesson. Verse 1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. Same start we've seen repeatedly. My son, pay attention. I'm going to tell you something important. I'd like to repeat what I've said on numerous occasions. The book of Proverbs are instructions from a father to a son. 
It could just as easily have been written, instructions from a father to a daughter and warnings about the adulterous man. It could just as easily have been written in that direction. There's nothing in here that says, oh, the poor young man and the woman that are leading him astray. I can write stories of poor young women and the men that are leading them astray. No problem. It just so happens that the book of Proverbs are instructions from a father to a son. So that's the way the genders go in this particular chapter. For the lips of the adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. What is this saying? It's saying that the adulterous woman is very attractive. Her speech is very appealing. We have to remember this because sometimes we naively think when looking at sin in other people's lives that sin is not appealing. Sin is very appealing. If it wasn't appealing, we wouldn't fall into it so often. Sin in the short term in the right now, to the unwise person, is exceptionally attractive. And the adulterous woman looks good at the initial moment. But, but in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to, the de- to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the ways of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Here is the thing that we need to remember. Sin is attractive for the moment. What we're seeing in the book of Proverbs is this idea that I need to look beyond the moment. I need to look further downstream. I need to look in light of eternity. And what I see is that the path of foolishness, the path of sin, leads to destruction. This woman is leading down a path that she doesn't know where it's going to go, but the writer of Proverbs says it leads to destruction. Notice what it says. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. She gives no thought. She doesn't think beyond this encounter right now. What can I get right now? And the warning to the young man is to avoid women who have that mentality. What we're going to see throughout the book of Proverbs is that's just a warning in general. We saw it in the first chapter where the... um, Those on the path of foolishness came and said, come with us. Let us shed blood. Let's go do something violent. And they don't know where that is leading. Here we have a woman who wants to lead the young man astray, who is giving no thought to where her life is leading. Now, I don't want to show of hands, I definitely don't want to show up hands of how many of you know somebody who fits into the pattern of living a life with very little thought of next week. Okay? 
there's a movie, and I won't even tell you the title of it because it's a really silly movie. I like it. And the two guys are complaining, and one of them says, you don't ever think about the future. Me, I'm always a planning ahead. Here it is Monday, and I'm already thinking about what we're going to do on Wednesday. And for most people, that's planning ahead. That's looking to the future. What God wants us to do is to look at life in light of eternity. Look at life in light of the eternal destiny of following the path of wisdom versus following the path of foolishness. Verse 7. Now then, my son, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Don't go that way. Could it be any more clear? Don't dabble in it. Don't play with it. Don't see how close you can get to it. Don't go that way. It's pretty simple. Pretty simple to us. Yet, once again, we live in an age that wants to see how close we can get. You know, where's the line? Let me see how close I can get to that line without falling over. What the author is telling the son, the father is telling the son, is there's no good in that direction. Don't go there. Why not? Lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline. How my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. What we have here is the individual who has lived the life of foolishness. He has lived it, he has given in to sin and temptation, and he is looking back and he's saying, I hated discipline. I had the teachers, I had the instructors, I had the opportunity to learn how to live a life of wisdom, and I chose not to do it. I chose to do something else. What was the consequences of this choice? Give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. Strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. Your productivity, your life of producing something is squandered to the benefit of someone else. You do know that God has made us to be productive. He really has. Now, that may not necessarily mean productive in the sense of generating wealth, although it certainly does mean that. It means being productive in generating the fruits of the Spirit. It means being productive in generating uh, good deeds for other people. It means being productive to further the kingdom of God. God calls us to be productive. 
But the problem is, is if I'm not living the life of discipline and wisdom, that productive energy, that strength that God has given me is being used, is being dissipated on something else. I should be producing something from the kingdom of God, and I'm wasting my strength chasing after my own lust. And what the author is pointing out to the young man is you don't want to be the old man looking back at what might have been. When we introduced the book of Proverbs, I mentioned the fact that there was one question that was really lingering in my mind. We could argue that the book of Proverbs is written as instructions to youngsters. To youngsters looking down, going, don't go that way, go that way. Simple enough. Most of us, myself included, are a little further down the path. A lot of us are at that point where we are looking back and looking forward, and we do have those regrets. We have those regrets of, I should have chosen the path of wisdom in that instance but yet I chose the path of foolishness. We do know that God gives grace to us wherever we are in life. But if I am a 54-year-old, I happen to be 54 years old, if I am a 54-year-old, or if I'm an 84-year-old, and I look back and say how I hated discipline and instruction, and the reality is I still hate discipline and instruction, the next 10 or 20 years are going to be full of regret just like the last 10 or 20 years. I can repent, but I have to repent. I cannot regret yesterday's decisions without repentance and expect tomorrow to be any different. Just something to remember. Look what it also says. At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body is spent. You will say how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instruction instructors i have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly what this means is that it is obvious what began as a private indiscretion spending time with the adulterous woman becomes a public scandal this assembly that is mentioned here are the community leaders who get together at the city gates to determine the direction for the city. And the observation is, you have this individual 
who should have been productive, who should have been a contributor to the community, and the assembly says, what a wasted life. What began as a private indiscretion becomes a public problem. This is a huge discussion area with regards to ethics. The question is this, can the members of a group, be it a church, be it a nation, can the members of the group do their own thing and live a life of debauchery without it impacting the group as a whole? And sometimes we pretend that that's true. We pretend that it doesn't matter what I do, society, the church, whatever group you want, will be okay. C.S. Lewis makes the analogy of a ship. And he says a lot of people think about um, ethics being, well, is the ship going in the right direction? It doesn't matter what the individuals on the ship are doing as long as the ship itself is going in the right direction. But ultimately, what the individuals are doing will determine, will influence where the ship itself is going. Ultimately, the private becomes public. The productivity that should have been there has been squandered and society and the individual suffer for it. So, yes, Mike. Please do. Mike is drawing the observation that Solomon could look at the relationship of his father, David, and his mother, Bathsheba, and see the results of sinful activity. You know, sometimes we think, okay, Solomon fooled around with Bathsheba. Um, he repented. David, excuse me. David fooled around with Bathsheba. Whew. This really gets confusing. David fooled around with Bathsheba, and he repented, so it's all over. No problem. Historically, the fruit of that activity uh, was with David forever. The conflict that it produced in his household, the dissension that it produced in his household, was an impact once again. Not just to David, but to the entire nation of Israel. Yes? As you were speaking here, what came to my mind was something that Kierkegaard said. Mm -hmm. Life has to be lived fully. Let me understood. Did you hear that? Life is lived forward. I can, I, I'm making my decisions for tomorrow. I cannot replay yesterday. But it can only be understood looking backwards. 
It can be only be understood by saying, oh, that was the wrong path. That's why, that's why we need God's word and revelation to tell us, if you do this, tomorrow you're going to look back and go, that was a stupid thing. So, don't do it. It sounds so simple. But once again, don't, don't lose sight of the fact. The adulterous woman is exceptionally attractive right here. As long as I don't think about the fact that that path leads to destruction. As long as I don't think about that minor issue, it's real attractive right now. And that's the point of this pattern that I put together. You have to have discipline. You have to have wisdom. You have to have instruction and understanding so you can see the consequences of a particular path. It does take faith. It takes believing God when God says, don't go that way. Even though, even though the rest of the world says it's okay. I was thumbing through a textbook several months ago. Um, it was a sociology textbook. And it's just phenomenal to me. The idea that sexual activity outside of marriage is a normal, healthy part of life, and all we have to do is make sure that you don't get some disease. Other than that, what's the problem? And I'm sitting here thinking, here's what the world is teaching. Here's what the Bible is teaching. Who am I going to believe? Do I want to believe that the long-term consequences of following the way of the world is destruction. Am I willing to believe that? Let's keep going. There is a solution. There is a solution to this need that God has put into us. <sighs> Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well, should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and here it comes, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Once again, this is instructions of a father to his son. And he's saying, there's a choice. There is a choice to be made. There is the adulterous woman, which leads to destruction, or there is the rejoicing in the wife of your youth, which brings, to li which brings you to life. It is interesting to me, and this, this is speculation on my part. My belief is that when it says my son up in verse 1, this is a young son. Okay, 
This son may not necessarily be married at this point. Once again, this is speculation on my part. You know, we have in chapter 31 a discussion of what to look for in a wife, which would lead you to believe that he's not married yet. But there is some discussion about who wrote which chapters and when they are compiled. So I understand all of that. My speculation, though, is that this young son may or may not be married because his father is telling him, down there is a solution to your problem. It is all right. It is perfectly natural for a young man to be interested in young women. Does that shock anybody? That is normal. That is the way God created us. Sometimes we appear to be shocked by that. We shouldn't be. God created young men to like young women. <clears throat> kind of weird. But what he's telling the young man is that there is a godly way and an ungodly way to satisfy that want. He uses this imagery of a cistern, and to be quite honest, there's some debate about what's referring to what in this particular imagery, but we'll look at it just briefly. Drink water from your own cistern. You know what a cistern is. A cistern collects rainwater. It was fascinating to me when I had the opportunity to go to Israel a couple of years ago. There's cisterns everywhere. I mean, we think of, you know, plumbing and, you know, you go to the water treatment plant and you get water and it comes in pipes. They didn't have any of that stuff. It was a cistern or it was nothing because you had a rainy season and you had the rest of the year. And, you know, you go to places like uh, Masada, you know, big fortress up on top of a hill. It had a cavern underneath it that was the cistern. And speculation is, is that they actually diverted the water running down the, hill, the mountain in springtime, diverted it into that cistern to fill it up. Essentially, it had to go uphill. You know, you get enough velocity on it and it can work it. The cistern was the source of water. It was the source of life. Once again, another human need that God has created in us. And God has created a solution. The observation is, though, it's for you, not for somebody else. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs, should your life force overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public square, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. And once again, there is some discussion about what the fountain is. Um, most commentators would tell you that's, that is your wife. May your wife be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Notice the word rejoice. This isn't, oh, well, I have to put up with it. No. Keep that in mind. A loving doe, a graceful deer. Here we have imagery that is very similar to the imagery that you see in the Song of Solomon, where the beloved 
is talking about, with the lover, is talking about the beloved and uses this imagery. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Does somebody else have a different word for captivated? Exhilarated. Exhilarated? Somebody else. Intoxicated. The word actually means to be swept away, to be carried away. This isn't some mamby-pamby, oh, well, if that's the best I can get, I'll settle for that. This is intoxication, captivated with the wife of your youth. You ready for this? I read this passage for years thinking that it was the function in this passage, it was the function of the wife to satisfy. What this verse is telling us, it is the duty of the husband to be satisfied. Do you see the difference? How do we know that the husband is not satisfied? It's quite obvious in our society today. Go look at the statistics about the use of pornography in our society. It is rampant. Not just a little bit. It is rampant. Why? Because men are not satisfied with what God has provided for them. Look at the incidences of sex outside a marriage relationship. Why? Because men are not satisfied with what God has provided them. Why are they not satisfied? Because they are not living lives of wisdom and knowledge. That is the point. To obtain the solution that God has provided requires that we live a life of discipline and wisdom. The disciplined man is disciplined to be satisfied with what God has provided. Oh, so that satisfaction is just grit your teeth and put up with it. No, he is to be intoxicated. He is to be swept away with his wife. This isn't the bad solution where the adulterous woman is the attractive solution. This is the better solution when we are being content with the trashy solution. Once again, as C.S. Lewis says, our problem is not that we want too much. Our problem is that we settle for so little. God wants, desires us to have good relationships with our spouse. And that's better than 
the other. But wait. The lips of the adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. It is easy to be led astray if you don't have the wisdom and you don't have the knowledge of the ultimate end of life. It's like this. Let's say that you are one of those people that likes roller coasters. I am not one of those people. Okay? I didn't particularly like them when I was young, and then I got away from them for years, and then I told myself that I would ride whatever my children wanted to ride. And I did. Okay? Now my children are old enough, they don't need me to ride, and I don't volunteer. Okay? I, but let's say that you are one of those people that like roller coasters. And I promise you, this is the most fabulous roller coaster. You are going to go up and you're going to go down. But I have to tell you, that last hill, it's not finished. There's no track going down. It is 300 feet straight to the ground. What if I told you that? When you started that roller coaster, would you be going, hey, this turn's pretty good? Yeah. No. You'd be thinking about the fact that that last hill has no track. As we engage in immoral sexual behavior, would we really enjoy it if we knew that the last hill has no track? If we really knew that ultimately, even though the adulterous woman's lips drip with honey, that ultimately there is a 300-foot collapse at the end, would we enjoy it? No, we would not. We would despise it. We would run away from it so fast What if we believed that having sexual activity with one person, a spouse, for our entire lives does in fact produce the greatest happiness? And I might add, statistically, that does happen to be true, by the way. It really is, by the way. If we really believed that, wouldn't we learn to not just grit our teeth and put up with it, but to rejoice that that is God's provision for us. Once again, we may be talking in this passage to a young man who's not even married yet, but he is being warned. Before you ever get married, you need to be thinking about the long-term direction because the habits that are formed will carry over into the rest of your life. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. I need to stop reading this word. It embarrasses my wife. <laughs> may you ever be captivated by your love. Why be captivated? That's the same word, by the way. Why be swept away? Why be intoxicated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? Why? 
I mean, let's just let's just ask the question: Why do men have affairs? Go ahead. At some point, they took a wrong turn. Uh-huh. <laughs> You've messed up. We'll talk about that in just a moment, maybe, if we don't run out of time. Come on, why do men have affairs? This is easy. Go ahead. It is actually an interesting discussion. His observation, his question was, do I have any statistics? I have seen those statistics. I can't remember them, okay? But the observation is this, and I've actually quoted it before, that the adultery rate for Christians is just the same as the adultery rate for non-Christians. And isn't that horrible? The problem is, is that's not true, okay? It's not true because of this. If I go to, and I'm taking a random sample of people, and I'm doing a survey, and I go to you, and I say, are you a Christian? And you say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, have you had an affair in the last five years? Yeah, I have. Check. What does it mean when you say you're a Christian? Okay. I live in the United States. My parents went to church. By golly, I'm a Christian. And that's what it means to most people. If you start looking at actual behavior, who goes to church, who reads their Bible, who takes their family to church, then the statistics are radically different. And the adultery rate among Christians is considerably different than that from the general populace. Having said that, having said that, that doesn't mean it's not a problem. That doesn't mean that it's not a problem in this church today. I could tell you stories. My brother-in-law, who's the men's minister in this church, could tell you stories that would take you the rest of the week. It is a problem. It is an issue. Why? Because we live in a society that emphasizes the fact that the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and downplays the reality that that path leads to destruction. I've told you before, there's a big-name Christian writer, and earlier in his life, he sat down and he wrote out a list. What would be the consequences to me if I had an affair? He typed them up, he put them in a frame, and he put them on his desk. I would lose my wife, I would lose the respect of my community, my children would not respect me, etc., 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 because he wanted to remember that there are consequences for going down the wrong path. That instant where you are dealing with the, oh, the lips of the adulterous woman that looks so nice. If that is the instant that you think you're going to make the decision, you're too late. You need to have already made the decision. And that's why he says, don't go near to his, the door of the adulterous woman. Why? You're not as strong as you think you are. We all, we all can fall into temptation. Don't do it. We have affairs because we believe 
that needs that we have are not being met. God created a need, and God created a solution. But if you begin to believe that your need is to have sexual activities with a different woman every week, God's not going to satisfy that need. If you begin to believe the world's ideas that the purpose of marriage is to satisfy you all the time and you and you and you and you alone, God's not going to satisfy that need. God did not create that need. God did not create the solution to that need. But he did create a need, and he did create a solution to it. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? And here it is. If you don't learn anything else from today's lesson, here is the phrase to remember. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. If you remember last week in the sermon, we had a discussion. There was an observation made about living your life before the face of God, acknowledging the fact that God is, is examining everything. I mean, let's face it. I think I've mentioned this at the beginning of the book of Proverbs. You know, when my father was alive and years before, there were certain things that I probably wouldn't do if my dad was around. Okay? I mean, let's face it. When he's there, I'll watch a PG-13 movie. If he's not there, maybe I'd watch an R-rated movie. Okay? Now, did he ever say, no, it's just his presence. The question is, if I knew it displeased him, why would I do it in the first place? Huh, what an interesting observation. If I know that God knows, and if I know that God is displeased, and if I know that God is displeased because he knows that the choices that I am making are leading down a path of destruction, how would that change my behavior? How would that change what I do? There is a reason the scripture continually talks about those involved in sin loving darkness because they think it hides them. They think it hides them. That's why hotels that do business with business customers make so much money by charging people to view pornographic movies in their hotel. I'm in a hotel. My wife's not around. My kid's not around. My coworkers. That's why they make it very obvious to you. The name of the movie will not appear on your bill. They know you, they want it to be anonymous. They know that. Why? Because we don't think anybody will know. Let me go dabble with the adulterous woman just once. Nobody will ever know. Nobody will ever know. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord. And he examines all his paths. Remember what it said about the adulterous woman? She gives no thought to the ways of life. She gives no thought at all. God is thinking all the time about it. 
and so should we. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. We do not realize fully or appreciate the addictive nature of sin. I think, okay, I'll visit the adulterous woman just once. I'll visit that pornographic website just once. But you know, it creates a need in us. It creates a, it creates a chemical response in us. And we want more. We want more. And pretty soon we are ensnared in our sinful behavior. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. This is the message of the book of Proverbs. There is a right way and there's a wrong way. One way works and one way doesn't. And it takes a life of faith for us to know which works. Now, just in case we forget, none of us make perfect decisions all the time. We are sinful human beings. We sin. That's why we need the grace of God. That's why we need to repent and turn around and go a different direction. But don't be naive. Don't be naive in thinking, I can sin, I can sin, I can sin, and a week from Thursday I'll repent. That's presumption. The reality is you sin and you sin and you sin, and a week from Wednesday you're ensnared in your sin, and on Thursday you don't ever think about repenting because you're enjoying the roller coaster totally oblivious to the fact that the last hill has no track on it and all that is there is destruction once again just a reminder this chapter is written this book is written instructions to a father to his son in reality there's three people in this chapter there is the son there is the adulterous woman and then there is the wife of the youth in reality, each of these three people are real human beings making choices, making decisions. Each one of these three people has the same choices to make. The wife of the youth has to make the same decisions to do what is right or do what is foolish. The adulterous woman has obviously already chosen to do that which is foolish. And there is no evidence in this chapter of repentance on her part. And by the way, we're going to see her again over in chapter 7. Why? Well, Solomon happens to think that when you're addressing a young man, this is pretty important. And you know what? It is pretty important. If we didn't think it was important, we wouldn't have so much sexual innuendo on our television shows. We wouldn't have sex being used to sell cars, beer, or whatever your other product is. We live in a society where this issue has to be addressed. The observation is this. Are you going to live a life of discipline? Are you going to live a life of wisdom that allows you to be satisfied 
with what God has provided. And not just grit your teeth and put up with it satisfied, but to be intoxicated and be carried away. That's what God wants. It isn't that we want too much. It's that we settle for way too little. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have provided for our needs. I pray, Lord, that each of us would learn to be satisfied with you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yes.